Let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 20. Our goal tonight is to get through 20, 21, and 22. Just a little bit of background. In the last 22 chapters, and Jeremiah has had one message, and that is that judgment is going to be imminent. Uh, it's going to come from the north. It's sort of like John chapter 8, where there's sort of a animosity uh, that's building between Jeremiah and the people, just like there was between Jesus and the Pharisees in John chapter 8. It sort of kind of continually escalated. It got to the point, if you want to go back to chapter 18, verse 18, where the people had had enough of Jeremiah's one message, and that one message was judgment is imminent and it's going to come from Babylon over and over and over. It amazes me how the same thing could be said for 20 chapters, only in different ways. If you look at verse 18, though, the people finally had it. They said, enough, Jeremiah. So in verse 18, then they said, come, let us devise plans against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us attack him with the tongue. Let us not give heed to his words, any of his words. So now they're talking tough, and what they do, verse 22, is it says they dug a pit and took me to it. Now, this is um, really the first time that they act on their desires. But as we get to chapter 20, um, on Sunday we've been using uh, different illustrations. Like on Sunday we use the illustration of the potter's wheel. And um, the broken flask, and the Lord told Jeremiah, he says, I want you to take a vessel, I want you to take the priest, I want you to take the elders, go outside of town, throw it down, break it, and it says, this is you, O house of Israel, you're going to be broken, you're going to be shattered, and there's going to be absolutely nothing you can do about it. So they, because of these things, have had enough, and um, they dig this pit for Jeremiah. What's different here tonight, when we come to chapter 20, is we find Jeremiah, for the first time, being physically persecuted. It's it's not just rhetoric. It's not just tough talk. They actually throw him. These are the first three verses of uh, Jeremiah chapter 20. Now, Pusher, the son of Immer, the priest, who was also chief governor of the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur struck Jeremiah, the prophet, put him in the stocks, And uh, that was in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. And it happened on the next day that Pasher brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. And then Jeremiah said to him, The Lord has not called your name Pasher, but Magamisabah. I like to think he'd call him, um, (laughs) you're a maggot or something like that, you know, and he's changing his name. So he spends a night in chains in the stocks, and this is the first time. The people actually are getting physical. And he's got to spend the night in a slammer to think it over. Uh, In 4 through 6, we find um, because of this, he gets personal with the the priest, who is also the chief governor. And Jeremiah says to this guy, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of this city, all its produce, all its precious things, all the treasures, the kings of Judah. I will give them into the hands of their enemies who have plundered them, seized them, and carried them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. You shall go into Babylon, and there you're going to die. And you're going to be buried there, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. So instead of um, Jeremiah being intimidated by a knight in a slammer, he is, um, has more conviction than he previously did. Instead of backing down, he, he points his finger right at this priest who was a chief guy that was there and um, says, it's all over for you. You're going down. And it's going to come by the hand of the king of Babylon, which is, of course, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 7 through 9, 
Oh Lord, you induced me. Even though Jeremiah uh, was steel-minded with his message that the Lord had given to him to deliver, and thinking about all the great prophets, and, and as great as they were, they still were men, still had feet of clay, and had great times of uh, insecurities. We'll be talking about Elijah. Even the greatest man who ever lived, John, John the Baptist, had his weak moments of doubt. Talked about that at men's prayer on Saturday morning. And Jeremiah, even though he's uh, um, strong in his message, it doesn't mean he didn't have a heart. Matter of fact, um, in um, chapter 33, it records that he wept over the death of his friend Josiah, the righteous king, when he died. So now, in verses 7 through 9, he calls out to the Lord. He says, O Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You're stronger than I, and and, uh, have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everybody mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted, violence and plunder. Because the word of the Lord was made to me, I was a reproach and a derision daily. They did not want to hear it. Nobody was happy with Jeremiah. Everybody hated Jeremiah. And he finally gets to the place, and this is where the humanness of the man comes out. He says, that's it. And he says, I'm not going to mention, and I said, I will not make mention of him. I'm not going to speak anymore in his name. I give up. I quit. I'm not doing this anymore. And he had reached that point for about 30 seconds. <laughs> if, you, if you read on. Because he just couldn't, he couldn't help himself. He said, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire shot up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. The guy simply knew too much. When the disciples, many of them, it says Jesus gave one of those studies that was, um, you know, design yourself, pick up your cross-site Bible study, and it says many of the disciples walked no more with him. They said, really? That's what I got to do in order to follow you? And he said, okay, we're out of here. And they left. And the Lord turns around to the other guys and he says, what about you guys? You could take off too? And it was Peter, this one he got right. He said, Lord, where can we go? I mean, where are we going to go? You, you're, you're the only one who has the words to eternal life. You got us. We believe that you're the Messiah. And what are we supposed to go back to anyway? So even though some left at the hard Bible study that the Lord gave about denying yourself and, and narrows the way we'll talk about that in a little bit, it's difficult. And a great thing about Jeremiah and the great thing about going chapter by chapter is it not only connects the dots with ongoing prophecy in the New Testament, but it's real. And it tells you that um, if you don't compromise like he did with this book, it's going to get you in trouble. And um, the Lord doesn't pull any punches with what the people will actually try to get you to do. But he was a man. And being a man, he, he gave up. And he didn't give up for long because he couldn't. He simply knew too much. Good place for an amen, by the way. He simply knew too much. And so he couldn't keep it in. And it, it got me thinking as uh, um, about our calling. Um, go back to chapter 1 of uh, Jeremiah. Sometimes when somebody comes up and they, they say they have a calling in their life or the Lord feels like he's calling them into ministry, I really only have one question for them. And that is, um, the scripture says, make your calling and your election sure. If you're going to be called, if you feel you're being called into the ministry, then make sure of your calling. Make your calling and election sure. So in Jeremiah's case, this was a no-brainer. If you go to chapter 1, verse 5, the Lord says, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. And I ordained you a prophet to the nation. And even then, he wasn't for it. He says, oh, Lord God, I I can't speak. I'm a youth. But the Lord said, do not say I'm a youth, 
For you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you to speak, speak it. Don't be afraid of their faces. For I'm with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and he was called, and he was anointed to be a prophet to Israel. Why is it important to make your calling and election sure? Well, the ministry can be a tough place. I don't think there's, I think it's the greatest opportunities for trials, and I think it's the greatest opportunities for blessings. And um, it sort of goes with the territory. And if you're sure of your calling, and you go through your, and you're, now walking with the Lord in the ministry that he called you. And all of a sudden you get to one of those fiery trials. I mean, it's a real tester. And um, you start wondering. If you know that you're called, you see, it really doesn't make any difference. Just like Jeremiah, where am I going to go? I was called by the Lord, and um, I, I can't go anywhere else. Now, if you're not sure, and you take... Um, one of those steps where you're not sure if the Lord is calling, you're not calling. The first time you go through that fire or that trial, you're going to find yourself second-guessing yourself. Was I really called? Am I supposed to be doing this? But if you're sure of your calling, then it's a non-issue. It's just a trial, and you're going to go through it. And so that's where um, he's at here. But one of the things that got me thinking of today is, is I can't hold it back. i got to tell somebody what the Lord has shown me. Turn to just a couple examples. Let's go to Matthew chapter, um, New Testament, Matthew chapter 8. Um, 1 through 4. Here's a leper. Imagine never, imagine getting the disease and, you know, if you're a leper, you have to announce that ahead of time that you're coming through town. And the word is unclean, unclean. That's what leopards had to do. And so he really, probably this guy had nobody touch him for years. No personal attention, no personal contact. Uh, He was ostracized by his community because of his leprosy. Verse 1 of chapter 8. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him. I I wonder if there was a gasp at that moment from the crowd. Because you don't touch lepers. And the Lord not only touched him, he says, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, I think they can deal with leprosy today, if I remember right, but certainly not in biblical times. They did not have a cure for leprosy. Um, it slowly eats away your flesh, um, takes away the, the, the feelings in your fingers, and um, eventually you die. That's just it. And yet, in the law, the Lord made a provision in the day of the cleansing of a leper. So he provided for the miraculous when the law was given. So when Jesus says to him, see that you tell no one, Uh, But go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So that's what this is referring to here. So this is, if you were cleansed of it, now it was like going to the doctor to make sure that you really don't have it. And he would then give you the clean bill of of health. I tried to put myself in this guy's shoes. First of all, nobody's touched me for years. And all of a sudden the Lord touches him, loves on him, and says, I'm willing, I'll do it. And he says, but here's the deal. You can't tell anybody. And I thought, I thought this through. If, I, if I'm this guy, what do you say to your buddies? What do you say to the guys that have, have seen you? You're the leper. <laughs> You're cleansed. How did that happen? And uh, the guy stumbles and stammers a little bit and goes, well, you know, I don't know. I'm lucky, I guess. What's he supposed to say? <laughs> He's just been cleansed from leprosy, and he's not going to tell somebody? Of course, he probably spread it abroad, what had happened to him. If it was me, I certainly would. Let's look at another one. Go to Mark chapter 8. Mark, make make it 7. Mark 7, picking it up in verse uh, 31. Here's a guy who's deaf and dumb. 
Uh, verse 31, then, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he, he came through the midst of the region of the Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment of his speech. He stammered or he stuttered. And they begged him to put his hand on him, and he took him aside from the multitudes and put his fingers in his ears and spat and touched his tongue. And you wonder, why does the Lord do something like that? And I think the answer to that is so that um, the Lord can do, you can't put the Lord in a box and say, this is how you get healed, or do it this way or that way. He's always doing it different. One time he tells the guy to see it, the next time he's, he's spitting and making mud and putting it in his eye. And um, you just can't put the Lord in a box. He's going to do what he, he wants to do. In this case, he puts his finger in the guy's ears, and he spat on his tongue, and looking up to, to heaven, he sighed, and he said to him, Epathatha, that is, be open. And immediately his ears were open, and the impediment of his tongue was loose, and he could speak plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, surely he, he has done all these things. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Well, how do you not, here you go and you, you've had a stuttering impediment your whole life. Um, Brent Lamb used to come up here on a regular basis and, and do concerts. And um, when I'd call Brent on the phone or when you'd just be talking to him, uh, he'd say, hi, 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 how you doing, Dwight? And that's, that's Brent on the phone. That's Brent if you're talking to him over lunch. And he had a speech impediment. However, when he got up and did a concert, it was perfect. Even when he was talking in between songs, it just wasn't there. My grandma Crandall, her stammering, mom says, was so bad. I exaggerated it a little bit, but my grandma would 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 stutter so bad. And she decided to ask her pastor to pray for her one day. And the pastor of her church laid hands on her and prayed for her, and she never stuttered the rest of her life, never. And she, how do you come home from being one person and then come home and sit at the, the, the supper table and your speech is perfectly clear and never stammered and never stuttered again? Sort of personal to me. I can put myself in a story. Now, if you tell me that story, maybe I'll believe you, maybe I won't. But it's my grandma, so I believe this story. And... Um, she actually, boy, I get sidetracked. if I get sidetracked with grandma stories, I'm in big trouble. She's actually seen, when I, when I was born again, she would tell these stories. She was a farm girl. And um, she's actually seen the Lord coming in the power of, uh, and his glory with the angel. She's seen it twice. And then after she told the story a couple times, um, she got used to the people looking at her a little weird and rolling their eyes. Well, when I got saved, I was talking about Jesus all the time. So she felt a little bit more comfortable telling me. But when she got in her 90s, she would forget that she already told me this story about 40 times. She said, Dwight, 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 come here. I want to tell you this story. And she says, I saw the Lord coming twice in the heavens with the angels. And I said, Grandma, I know you told me that story. I did, did I? Did I tell you, when I think I die, I think that's what it's going to be like. That I might actually, yeah, Grandma, you told me that one too. But she didn't want people to think she was crazy. But she, she, now that I was talking openly about Jesus, she felt more open to talk about it. But here's a woman who stammered, just like this man here. But Grandma had to tell somebody. And uh, here's Jeremiah. What he, he had been called by the Lord from the day of his birth. And um, the Lord commissioned him and said, don't worry about a thing because I'm going to be with you, Jeremiah. Just do it. So there's a 
couple examples. Let me just give you one more. Let's go to Luke chapter 8. Because this is something the Lord is saying over and over and over again. Don't tell anybody. Of course, it raises the question, why not? Why not tell anybody? It could have been an issue of crowd control. That might have been one of, of the reasons. I'm not, i tell you the truth, I'm not a 100% certain. But in Luke chapter 8, picking it up in verse 49, we have Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. It says, while he was speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to them, your daughter is dead, and so don't trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, well, don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. And when they came to the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, don't weep, she's not dead, she's, she's just sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing full well she was dead. But he put them all out by the hand and, and called, saying, little girl, arise. And then the spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded uh, that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. How do you not tell somebody what had just happened? Somebody stopped me after the second service on Sunday. Can't even remember who it was. And um, they were asking questions about um, life after death experiences and what happens. Well, here we're clearly told that the spirit came back into the body. This is not me. This is not me. This is not me. Me is in here. I'm a spirit and I have a soul. And uh, that is what is eternal. Now, big news this week. Over 38,000 people um, Googled or blogged about the picture I'm about to put up on the screen. And while it's being put up, I'll tell you a little bit about the story. And, it, it, and it's a picture, supposedly, of... There it is right there. Now, this was take, the picture was taken by a truck driver, and there's two ambulances, and um, the story is that uh, you can actually see the spirit of this person leaving the body, and this, there it is right there, and this, this has gone viral. Anybody else see it besides me or read it? Yeah. And um, so the question is, um, is this the real deal or not? And the answer is, because I, we did a little bit of research and, and Googled it, um, it could be a, 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 a smudge on the guy's window. It could be a, a smudge on his camera. Um, but what it isn't is a spirit leaving the body. And Dwight, how do you know f- for sure? Because when you read the whole story, he doesn't die till he gets to the hospital. Okay? So that, that just blows the whole thing out right there. When people ask me about life after death experiences and what they have, they tell you they had this life after death experience. They were taken to heaven. They saw this light at the end of the tunnel or whatever. Um, I don't give it a whole lot of heed. You know what I give a whole lot of heed to? Right here. Second Corinthians chapter 12 is the only place for sure, besides Jairus' daughter, where somebody was dead and the spirit came back into the body. Now, Paul actually talks about it. He says, I know a man in Christ about 14 years ago, uh, whether in the spirit, in the body, out of the body, I don't know, but I was taken to the third heaven. And there I heard things that are not lawful for a man to speak. Now, did Paul have a life after death experience? Yeah, because about 14 years earlier, he was stoned and left for dead. And I believe that's when he was taken to heaven. Was Paul taken to heaven? If the Bible says so, then I guess he went to heaven. Good place for an amen. But if uh, stuff like this that comes out, you don't know. Can, uh, can, is there, can you see the spirit leave the body? Uh, I don't see that recorded anywhere in the scriptures. And the fact that when you read uh, and do a little bit of research on it, and I read that um, according to the news, he was transported to the hospital and later he died. 
So he, he didn't die here. So this is a fake, just for what it's worth. And uh, we run, run across these from time to time. I thought I'd touch on it tonight in case you were watching it. All right, let's go back to, we got left off of verse 9 of chapter 20. Paul saying, Jeremiah is saying, that's it, I'm done. But he could not help but talk about what the Lord had given him to do. So verse 10, for I heard many mockings, fear on every side. Report, they say, we will report it. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be induced. Then we'll prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed. They will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and you who see the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for I have pleaded my cause before you. So, you know, it's the whole thing again of letting the Lord fight your battles for you. But it's not that he's not saying something, he is saying something. Like David, he's going straight to the top. And he's making his case with the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. These guys aren't getting away with anything. Especially this guy, um, Pasher. You know, he put him in prison for a night, but... um, the Lord gave him his own personal prophecy just to this guy. You're going to die in Babylon, buddy. And that's just the, that, that's the word of the Lord to you. Then from that, you know, talk about a roller coaster ride of emotions. Verse 13, sing to the Lord, explanation point. Praise the Lord, explanation point. For he has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of the evildoers. And then he re- reverts back to um, the, oh, woe is me. And um, he said, Cursed be the day which I was born. Let the day be not blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father, saying, A male child has been born to you, making him very glad. And let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. Let him hear the cry in the morning and shouting at noon because he did not kill me from the womb that my mother might have been my grave and my womb enlarged with me. Why even did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame? Sound familiar? That's because it's so much like Job, right? Let's turn back there. Just look at a couple of verses in Job. Again, I've got to stress this. The great thing about um, the chapter by chapter and book by book is you have to go through the book of Job. You have to go through the book of Lamentations. You've got to read the book of Jeremiah. And it's not happy clappy. Nothing here. Instead, we have a repeat. Uh, Job had everything going his way. And he got tested. And the one doing the testing was none other than the devil himself. And he was, the Lord was bragging on him. And, uh, of course, Lucifer says, well, look at what you did for the guy. You blessed him in every way. Why would he ever want to curse you? Take it all away. You'll see what the guy is really made of. He says, it's in your power. Go, go for it. You can do it. All of his possessions. The, and it's, when, when you read it, you've got to read it carefully because it's reoccurring one right after another. Uh, messengers come in while well, you're, Seven sons and your three daughters, they, they all get took up. All your cattle have been ripped off by the Sabians, they're gone. Job, you, you have nothing. And so what does Job say? Well, naked I came, naked I go. Praise the Lord. And that was his attitude. And it says in all this, Job did not accuse God falsely, but he praised him. All right, but having said that, he's still a man, he's still human, so we have Job's very first speech, chapter 3, and we'll just read the first three or four verses. Now, after this, 
By the way, this, he didn't say anything for seven days because his buddies came to visit him and he saw the boils and the suffering he was going through. So imagine just sitting and looking at a guy for seven days without saying a word because of his pain that he's in. And after seven days, it says, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish in which I was born and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the sorrow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for the night, may darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year. Um, I've had people come up to me and be ashamed for going through a trial. I said, I don't know what's going on. I just have this heavy weight. I, have no, I don't have the joy of the Lord. And I said, I'll say, bro. Or for a gal, I'll say, you know that half the, half the Psalms are praise, and the other half, he's pouring his heart out because of the trial that he's going through? And the Christian life is both. The Christian life is a life of great joy, at a time of great trial. Why? Because you're born again, and it says the spirit is continually at war with my flesh, and my flesh is continually at war with my spirit. So 24-7, I got a battle going on inside of me, and so do you. And so when you're having a real tough time, know that you're normal. Know that's exactly what the Bible speaks. Know that there's times that the heroes that we look up to say, I wish I was dead. Job here? Let's go back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, I wish I was dead. Cursed be the day that I was born. And so all that to say this, you are going to have days like that. And don't think that the Lord has left you. And um, know that much of the scriptures that a lot of people don't want to talk about, um, you know, the whole seeker-sensitive thing, don't say anything negative and don't say anything that's going to bring a person down. Well, and every time we get together in a size here, somebody's really going through it right now, big time. And they're going through a major trial of crisis, doubting even their faith or whatever. Well, guess what? You're normal. <laughs> Welcome to the Christian walk. You know, the first thing I tell baby Christians after they say the sinner's prayer, I take them to the parable of the sower. I said, that here's the very first thing that's going to happen. The devil's going to try to undo what you just did. It says, then came the devil and, uh, the, 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 or the bird, and they tried to take that seed away. I said, you need to know that you just, um, your name was just put in heaven, and yes, the angels are rejoicing. All true. Amen? And at the same time, you just entered the spiritual war zone. And there's a battle to undo what just happened to you. And it can come in many forms. You can go home and tell your girlfriend, I just got saved. Praise the Lord. She says, I'm out of here. You become one of those Jesus freaks, see you later. And ultimatums are made like that every single day. We have people in the fellowship that are in that place right now. Ultimatums are being given because either they just got saved and, and, um, or for whatever reason. So anyway, um, here as we look at chapter 20 and, and summing up this first whole chapter, it's the first time that Jeremiah actually um, is sown in prison. He's physically uh, pretty much assaulted. And um, then, again, the honesty of him really just going through it. Chapter 21, we have the message against um, Zedekiah. We're getting towards the, the end before, um, again, Jeremiah writes before, during, and after uh, the Babylonian invasion. And we're getting close to it right now. Matter of fact, the siege has already begun. And so let's, uh, let's read the chapter and I'll come back and I'll just bring out a couple of verses. So this is a message to Zedekiah. Uh, the word which came to Jeremiah f- from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, saying, Please inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, 
makes war against us. And perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all of his wonderful works that the king may go away from us. Uh, then Jeremiah, Jeremiah said to them, this is what I want you to say to, to Zedekiah. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls and I will assemble them in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outreached hand, with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. I'm going to strike the inhabitants of this city, both men and beasts, and they shall die of a great pestilence. And afterwards, afterwards, says the Lord, I'm going to deliver Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his servants and the people, and such as are left in the city, uh, from the, the pestilence and the sword and the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life, and he will strike them with the edge of the sword. He will not spare them. He will not have no mercy, and he will not have any pity. Now, this is what I want you to say to the people. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life, and the way of death. He who remains in his city shall die, that's the way of death, by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and effects to the Chaldeans, Chaldeans is just another word for a Babylonian, but he who capitulates to the Babylonians who besiege you, well, they're going to live and his life shall be a prize to him. Why? For I have set my face against this city for adversity and not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. And concerning the house of the king of Judah, say, hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord. Execute judgment in the morning, and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. And let my fury go out like fire, and burn so no one can quench it because of the evil of their doings. Behold, I am against you, O inhabitants of the valley and rocks of the plain, says the Lord, who says, who shall come down against us? Or who shall enter our habitations? But I'm going to punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Lord. I will kinder a fire in the forest, and it shall devour all things round about. Let's go back to verses Eight and nine. My personal feeling is why I think um, um, Zedekiah is going straight to Jeremiah the prophet is I think he knows his history a little bit. And uh, during Hezekiah's time, when Isaiah was a prophet, well, the Assyrians, and the guy's name, the king of the Assyrians, was called Sennacherib. He had 185,000 in the same condition surrounding the whole city of Jerusalem. And, um, I mean, Isaiah uh, was told to go talk to Hezekiah because he's freaking out. And um, the Lord says to Isaiah, go talk to him. Tell him I don't want him to worry about a thing. I'm wondering if Zedekiah isn't thinking the same thing. We're surrounded And he's doing a flashback, maybe on Hezekiah. And he knows what happened. And the word of the Lord to uh, Hezekiah was, don't sweat it. Not one of you, not one arrow is going to come over the city wall, and you're not going to lose one life. So that night, (laughs) one angel took out 185,000 Assyrians, and uh, Sennacherib went back to Assyria, and he was killed by his two sons. And history changed overnight. That was the end of the Assyrian Empire. In the beginning, it took a while for Babylon to, to get to its place. But eventually, I can't help but think that this guy is thinking, well, just maybe. The other thing I think of here is some people just don't call out upon the Lord until there just isn't any other way. 
we resource, we'll, we'll, do, we'll exhaust every resource except to pray. And then when we're, our back's against the wall and there's no place to look but up, that's what I think's happening here. He's surrounded. So he goes right to Jeremiah. Will you please pray for us? And get us out of it. Not this time. You've gone too far. Remember in the last couple of weeks, it's, remember it all goes back to Manasseh. And um, he said, you guys crossed the line with Manasseh um, because he was burning children. And uh, he had just crossed the point of no return. And the Lord remembers all this. So that's why Jeremiah's message um, is as harsh as it is. But this other verse, in verse 9 and 10, um, he says, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. This occurs four times in the scriptures. In Deuteronomy 30, it says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. In Psalm 86, O God, the proud have, have risen against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life, and you have set and set you before them. And Jeremiah 21, 8, now, see, Lord, I have set before you the way of life and death. Well, two options. And when the gospel uh, is presented, the way of life is being presented to a person, but if it's rejected, Jesus said, narrow is the way, right? That leads to life. Few there be there who find it. And by the word, he actually adds a word. It's going to be difficult if you take the narrow way. But then the other way, he says, is very wide and broad, and many will be that find that. It's encouraging to me because I think biblical Christians in the last days are always going to be in the minority and not the majority. Good place for an amen. And it's only going to get worse, gang. There isn't a day go by that it doesn't get worse than a day before. And it's just the next thing, where's it going to hit and how's it going to hit? And, um, ooh, can I get sidetracked there? But then I won't get through chapter 22. So, um, chapter 22, the judgment of Jehoiakim. Chapter 22 contains one of the harshest judgments pronounced on a man by the Lord. I think it's harsher than the mark that he put on Cain. Uh, the comments that he made about Judas Iscariot. Uh, this is a judgment, and this is where some people get confused because sometimes they call him Coniah, C-O-N-I-A-H, but they're referring to uh, uh, Jehoiachin. So we're picking this up here with um, the judgment of Jehoiakim. So we're looking at the last three kings before Nebuchadnezzar brings down the fall. Let's pick it up, verses 1 through 18. Now thus says the Lord. I want you to go down to, to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants, and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord. Execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plunder out of the hand of the oppressor and do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. What's being implied here is that's exactly what was taking place. Um, They were taking advantage of the underprivileged and the poor. Uh, For thus says the Lord to the house of the king of Judah, you are Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon. Yet I surely will make you a wilderness and cities which are not inhabited. I will prepare destroyers against you, everyone with his weapons. They shall cut down your choice cedars, cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by this city of Jerusalem And everyone will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord done this to this great city? And then they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God, 
They've worshipped other gods. We mentioned uh, Moloch and Baal, and they actually served them. So here's the message, um, first of all, that was um, given to Zedekiah. Then we have the message against uh, Shalom in verses 10 and 11. He says, weep not for the, the dead, nor bemoan him, but weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more, nor is he ever going to see his native country land again. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, who, who reigned instead of Josiah, his father, who went from this place. He shall not return here anymore. But he shall die in the place where they had left him captive and shall see his land no more. So now the third message that um, um, Jeremiah is to give to Jehoiakim. So we have Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. This one is to Jehoiakim. It says, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work, who says, I will build myself a wide house and a spacious chamber and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? That's a question. Did not your fathers eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with them. He judges the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well. Was not this knowing me, says the Lord? Yet your eyes have set your heart are for nothing but your covetousness and for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. Evidently, what was happening here is the judgment that's coming is they were wealthy, they were taking advantage, uh, 16 and 17, of the poor, exploiting them, if you will. And it, it got me thinking a little bit about the warnings that we actually have uh, in the scriptures. I'll have, uh, um, <laughs> I'll tell you how this happened. I'm studying this today, and I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, and um, I'm thinking of James 5, and I'll just quote this one to you. It's a warning to the rich. And it says, Go to now, you rich man, weep and howl, for your miseries will come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and your silver is cankered, and the rest of them shall be a witness against you. That's James 5, 1 to 3. And I started thinking about, you know, what else does the Lord have to say about rich people? And I thought, about the rich man of Lazarus. And I thought, well, should I go there or not? And I just, I went like this. I just sort of took my Bible and it opened to Luke chapter 16. So I took that as a yes. <laughs> Let's turn to Luke chapter 16. For some reason, we're supposed to talk about this a little bit tonight. And I, let's tie it into three things that we're, we've learned from Jeremiah tonight. First thing we're learning is he couldn't keep his mouth shut even when he didn't want to do it anymore. When he wanted to quit, he couldn't. It's like Peter. Yeah, it's going to be tough, but who else says the words to eternal life? Number one, you can't quit. Good place for an amen. You can't quit. You've got to keep going. The other thing, that, that uh, as a result of that, there's going to be consequences. You're going to lose friends. And you're going to lose people that you were tight with. I mean, my two best friends completely wrote me off. And I said, Dwight, the last thing we'll ever do will become a Christian because we see how crazy it's made you. Final thing. Well, one of them got radically saved and he's in Africa right now preaching the gospel. And I'm still praying for my other friend, John Mark. How can you not get saved with a name like John Mark, right? It's like Ruth Christian. It was just a matter of time for Ruth before, you know, uh, she gets her, her call. So the other thing is, um, with it, let me brag on my pop a little bit. My dad was a very successful businessman. He had three different businesses, and he got saved at the age of 50. 
And I've told this story a hundred times, but maybe you're hearing it for the first time. I would argue, I'd come home and say, Dad, you need to be born again. He says, I'm the father, you're the son, shut up and listen. I go to church every Sunday. And that's the way it went on for a couple of years. Then you know the story, the wrong phone call. It gets Baptist born-again minister on the other end of the phone. Sorry, I got the wrong number. Baptist minister says, no, you don't, Larry. You got the right number. And he came over in the course of a week, and he led my dad to Christ. Dad had one question. It's his life verse. And he says, how can anybody know for sure they're going to heaven? How can you know for sure? Larry, 1 John 5, verse 13. These things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. The Bible says that? He says, yeah, Larry, if you ever read the Bible, you'd find out it has a lot to say. The church you're going to doesn't teach the Bible, so you don't know that. And he headed out with the denomination that I went to. He says, I've sat in that pew for 25 years, and you did not tell me one time I had to be born again. Well, when my dad got born again, uh, this is how he knew for sure it was real. Uh, the next time I saw him, we didn't argue. He said, son, I feel like I've wasted my whole life, and I'm 50 years old. And then I knew Dad was born again. Um, he had the Wickholm franchise for a good part of Wisconsin. He had three barber shops, and he was in the real estate. And he got rid of all of the above and uh, went and built a house in, uh, in Pine River. Not because he necessarily wanted to build a house in Pine River. He needed to get away to rethink things. So when he decided that he had to go back to work, he didn't know what to do. But um, he saw Service Master. That's a cleaning company, right? And it's actually a Christian cleaning company. So my dad, being young in the Lord, was praying about what he should do with his life. Service for the Master. <laughs> That's as deep as his theology was. <laughs> And he actually became, uh, that's what he did for a, a couple of years until mom's arthritis moved him down to Arizona. Had to go to Arizona. The, this weather would be killing her right now because, because of her arthritis. But dad was loved, nice guy, 20 bucks in the plate every Sunday for years and years and years. And um, my dad died broke. And he could have died, I think, a millionaire if he really set his mind to it because that's what he was into. Let me clarify. Um, uh, there's, it's, it's not money that's the problem. It's the love of money that's the problem. Money is amoral. It can be used for good. And um, there are many wealthy people who know and love the Lord. And they, it's, they, they see it as a, a way that they can be a blessing to others. So don't misunderstand when I say, well, you need to do what my dad did. No, that's what my dad needed to do for himself. And so that's why he did it. He wasn't doing it for nobody else, but he had to think things through. So anyway, if you're in Luke chapter 16, we have a rich guy and a poor guy. And um, Jesus talked about the poor. He didn't praise them. He says, the poor you have with, with you always, but I'm not always going to be here. Uh, we talked about this on Sunday when the whole year's wages of the perfume was poured on, on the Lord for his burial. And he says, you're always going to have poor people, but you're not always going to have me here. So I'm not pitting wealth against poverty, and you're more spiritual if you're poor. But the fact of the matter is, you have a whole lot more temptations if you're rich. Amen? Okay, so that's the situation, I think, here. Verse 19 of chapter 16. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and he fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar whose name was Lazarus. He was full of sores and he laid at the gate desiring just to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, uh, the dogs came and, and licked his sores. Um, so, you know, it's a pitiful scene. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now we know, um, uh, we have more clarity from what we showed earlier, what happens when a Christian dies. Here, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is not heaven. 
Abraham's bosom is that chamber. In Hebrews, um, it talks about these all died in faith, not having received the promise, but they looked forward to the city whose builder or maker was God. Before Jesus died on the cross, if a faithful saint of the Old Testament died, he did not go, nor could he go to heaven. Why? Because Jesus had not yet died on the cross, and he was the first fruits of the resurrection. So when Jesus said to the guy on his right who believed on him, he says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He wasn't talking about heaven. He was talking about this place right here, Abraham's bosom. Now, so he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, uh, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. In other words, a place of comfort. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and, and send Lazarus that we may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for... I am tormented in these flames. So much for Rob Bell and his book, Love Wins, and Universalism, where there is no hell. Jesus talked more about hell than any, anybody else in the scriptures. And uh, I do not, this is called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rule of thumb with parables, if it's got a proper name in it, isn't a parable. It's actually a story that's true. And here we have a named person whose name is Lazarus. Rich guy goes unnamed. But he's in torment, and he says, Abraham. But Abraham um, said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise, Lazarus, evil things. Now he's comforted, and you're tormented. And besides all that, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here cannot, nor can those pass from here go back to you. So the Lord set it up that he could actually see Lazarus being comforted and he realized he was in torment. Now this is the first time the real reality check settles in on this guy. That his consequences, when the Bible says once to die and then the judgment, well, once to die. This is hitting him for the first time that there's no way out. And it it settled in, so he says, Realizing this, he says, okay, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would at least send them to my father's house. You see, I have five brothers. They're just like me. That they witness to them, lest they come to this place of torment. Gang, I can't encourage you enough to don't waste, waste your bullets. You know, when you have an opportunity, ask the Lord for that divine appointment. Look for that open door and get it when you can. My way of of dealing with um, people are two ways. If it's somebody that I know that I'm going to have a relationship for a long period of time, I want to be a good witness to them, number one, and I want to uh, carefully choose my times to sharing with them. Then there's other times where I realize I got one shot with this guy. So if I got one shot with this guy... He's going to get both barrels. At least I'm going to try to make the conversation happen somehow, some way. And uh, you'll get blown off sometimes. And other times you'll find out, holy smokes, this is a divine appointment, and I didn't even know it. And uh, the Lord just opens that door. And uh, here he realizes that he has no second chance, but maybe for the first time in his life, he's concerned about his other five brothers. And he said, would you please tell somebody to witness because I sure don't want them coming to this place. If we had one glimpse of hell and uh, one taste of of the reality of it, it would give us a whole different perspective of um, how we spend our time, energy, and resources. Another good place for an amen. Well, here's where the reality checks comes in for this guy. Verse 20, Abraham said to him, hey, they have this book. They have Moses and the prophets. That's what they have. And um, we have the Bible. And he said, uh, no, Father Abraham, I know my brothers are not going to listen to that, but if one goes to them from the dead, 
Then they'll repent. Well, that's interesting. There just happened to be a guy named Lazarus who came back from the dead, right? And what happened? A lot of people got saved. But there were scribes and Pharisees that saw it too, and they, said, they went back to Jerusalem, and they said, we not only gotta kill Jesus, but we gotta get rid of this guy, Lazarus, too, because we just saw him come back from the dead. He's a walking, living witness. He's gotta go. So um, people can actually experience a miracle in their life and simply brush it off and blow it away, just like this guy. Uh, they will repent, but he said, even if they do, and this verse 31, but he said to them, even if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. Let's go back to Jeremiah. Time is up. We'll finish out this chapter. 22. The last judgment is against um, Jehoiachin. So in verses 13, up to 23, it's um, a message to Jehoiakim. And now the last one here is Coniah, or Jeconiah. And he says, as I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were the signet of my right hand, yet I would pluck you off, and I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those who face your fear. The hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. And so I will cast you out, you and your mother who bore you, into another country where you were not born, and there you're going to die. But to the land to which they desire to return, they will not return. In this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol. Question. Is he a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out and his descendants and cast it into a land which do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. A man shall not prosper in his days and none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anyone in Judah. I want to leave this with this thought because this is a judgment and a curse put on this man. And as a result of it, we had, he is um, of the kings of Judah, which would have been traced back to David. But when you follow this line, you have, when you get to the book of Matthew, you have the genealogy that goes through Joseph. Joseph actually goes back to the line of Jehoiachin. And that's why, um, There has to be two genealogies because there was a curse put on this one here. And when you have the genealogy in Luke with Mary, um, we have her fulfilling um, the promise that he would come from the line of David, but not through this one. It couldn't come through Joseph because of this curse that was placed upon him here. All right. Jeremiah chapter 20, 21, 22. First thing we learn in summary, again, um, he got persecuted physically for the first time. He wanted to give up. Anybody thinking about giving up tonight, here's a word of the Lord to you. Don't give up. My question is, where are you going to go? Who are you going to turn to? Ghostbusters? No? Ain't gonna happen. The Bible teaches that the the way is narrow and it's difficult. I'm glad for that. It comforts me many times when I'm having a tough day or I just don't feel good. And um, days like today especially, this humidity sucks me in the gut. It zaps all of my energy. I can't tell you how unspiritual I feel. Being honest with you now, I feel very unspiritual. And that's why the Bible says, don't ever trust your feelings, because your feelings are deceitful, your heart is deceitful above all things. But the good news is, this book never changes. Same yesterday, today, and forever. Tells you the truth. Gonna be times it's very, very difficult. It's gonna be times you don't feel spiritual at all. 
But the fact of the matter is that um, uh, my feelings change with the weather. And Jesus says, the book that you're holding on your lap, heaven and earth will pass away, but not the book that's in your lap. And this is as bad as it's ever going to get. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thanks for your word tonight. And as we make our way through Jeremiah 20, 21, and 22, thank you, Lord, that we can read about a guy just really going through it. And once your word is spoken and a nation has crossed the line, as I believe our nation has crossed the line, we can expect that you will be patient for so long and you will allow judgment even to come to our own nation. In the meantime, we pray for those divine appointments. We understand that you've set before us the way of life. You've set before us the way of death. Lord, help us be instruments of your peace that can be bold as Jeremiah is bold in pointing people to the way of life. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen.